This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, Dinesh D'Souza discusses his new book, The United States of Socialism. The book examines what he calls the new face of socialism. He's interviewed by author and Independent Institute senior fellow, Benjamin Powell. So five years ago, it would be hard to imagine a book being called The United States of Socialism being published. But a lot has changed since then. And so there's probably a fairly obvious answer to my first question, but a lot of books have been published about socialism in response to what's changed over the last five years. And they all have a little bit of a different take on it and emphasize different points. So the non-obvious question to my answer, answer to my question is what I'm really interested here. That is, why the United States of Socialism? Why did you write this book, Dinesh? I um, noticed that there have been a flurry of books on socialism. That's no surprise because socialism has come into the American mainstream for the first time in our country's history. There have been socialist candidates in the past, uh, Eugene Debs, Norman Thomas, but they were never um, in the mainstream. Uh, and But now... Uh, in fact, at a time when many of us thought socialism had collapsed at the end of the 20th century, suddenly in the 21st century, it's back and it's back with the vengeance. Um, so I'm not surprised that there's a lot of books that try to take stock of this. Now, there's a unifying theme, I think, to these books. And by and large, it is an appeal to history. It's the idea that socialism has never worked before certainly not for lack of being tried. It was tried in really the majority of the world. Uh, the largest countries in the world, Russia, China, India, all swung to the socialist direction. Um, so um, the issue is that socialism didn't work before, so it's not going to work now. It's the verdict of history kind of argument. But the problem with that argument is that the socialist left, first of all, a lot of young people don't know that history, so it doesn't really get them. Uh, and the second part of it is even those who do say, listen, uh, we're trying a new form of socialism, number one. It's not uh, authoritarian socialism. It's democratic socialism, number two. Our model is not Lenin or Mao. Uh, it is um, Scandinavia. We like the way people live in Norway and Sweden. Those aren't horrible countries to live in. So why not the Scandinavian model? It does work. Works right there. You can see it. Um, and, um, uh, and three, uh, we have new types of socialism. Our socialism isn't just about class uh, grievances. It includes racial grievances and gender grievances and transgender grievances. So in other words, the left is putting forward this kind of new socialism, if you will, and insisting that this time... Uh, it actually can and will work. So let's start there then maybe of, of getting straight what it is that we're talking about. When you write a book about socialism, what is socialism that you're talking about? In the classic sense, it meant something to Marx, to Lenin, to most early socialists. And it was a very economic concept. It was uh, some form of collective ownership of the means of production, abolishing private property. And that form of socialism isn't very common today, at least in large scale. So what is it that you mean when you say socialism in this context? Yeah, the, the new uh, socialism is not, um, I would call it classic socialism. Now, socialism has sort of evolved uh, over the last century and a half. Originally, this is socialism before Marx. It meant these voluntary communities of people um, who would come together on their own, share all their possessions. There was usually kind of a free love component, but the state was not involved. 
Um, Marx then came along and proposed his Marxian socialism, which essentially was the revolt of the proletariat, of the working class, so would presumably overthrow the capitalist class and take over, um, take over the means of production and ultimately take over the whole community. Uh, that prediction of Marx has never come true, either in Marx's day to this day, uh, anywhere in the world. There's never been that kind of a worker revolt ever. Um, in the early and late 20th century, socialism meant for many countries nationalization. So I grew up in India. The Indian government took over the banks, took over the airlines, controlled ultimately the farming industry. So socialism in practice meant state uh, ownership of massive major industries and critical industries. Now, the left today is not interested in any of this per se. Um, the new socialism has an economic component and it has all these ideas like the Green New Deal, uh, Medicare for everybody, free college. Uh, you can see that these ideas are now embraced by the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Uh, but it also includes, and this is important, a, a cultural uh, component. Uh, I write somewhere in this uh, book a line where I say the typical socialist today is not a union guy demanding higher wages. Uh, it's sort of an eco-feminist who marches in Black Lives Matter or Antifa rallies and throws cement blocks at her political opponents. So that's, that's not a character that Marx could have fore, foreseen. And it reflects the fact that we're dealing here with a, an interesting hybrid of cultural and economic issues. A lot of socialists today care more about abortion than the minimum wage. They care more about the transgender bathroom than they care about, say, universal basic income. There's a, there's a cultural component that sometimes overtakes the economic component. Yeah, so let's work our way through those, starting with some of the economic components and then getting into these cultural components, too. And I found it amusing in the book, at one point, you define the types of socialists, I believe it was hardcore socialist, quasi-socialist, and socialist lights, uh, like a Bud Light, maybe. Uh, what, what do you mean by those three terms? Who fall, what, what falls into those categories? Well, a good way to think about this is to compare Biden against, for example, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders is an, is an explicit socialist. Uh, he sounds like an old-time socialist. I mean, there's a comic element to this. He honeymoons in the Soviet Union. He praises bread lines. They're a good thing. Um, now, this is a bit too much. I, I don't think this is the socialism that you can actually get um, sold in the United States. Uh, and so the Democrats have opted for, I would call it socialism light, or, or perhaps more accurately, creeping socialism. And that's Biden. So Biden, for example, opposed free college, but now he's for it. Uh, why? Because the pull in the Democratic Party is toward the left. And so a good way to think about socialism now is not so much as a kind of defined thing, but to think of the free market on one end of the spectrum and socialism on the other end and ask this question. Which Democrat is pulling in the free market direction and which Democrat is pulling in the socialist direction? And the simple answer is they're all pulling in the socialist direction without exception. It's just a matter of whether they're pulling hard or pulling softly. So I think the Democrats have decided let's go with creeping socialism. It's more marketable than Bernie socialism. And that's why they picked Biden over Bernie. I think you're exactly right to talk about this as, as being on a spectrum, because even in defining the, you know, the narrow version of socialism of nationalizing the means of production, there's been varying degrees of that where socialism has been present. Uh, the Soviet Union during the period of war communism or, or Mao during the Great Leap Forward was a, a darn near complete nationalization. 
and then they partially liberalize, but they're still overwhelmingly socialist. And same for countries like us that are more on the capitalist end of the spectrum and maybe running in this, this opposite way. So let's look at some of these policies running the opposite way then that some of them you could kind of already mentioned. Uh, one of them is single payer healthcare or some version of nationalized healthcare that some of the socialists would like. Uh, that actually kind of fits into the traditional definition of socialism a little bit better. Yeah, it does. Um, and of course, there are welfare states in Europe that have um, national control of healthcare. Um, part of this is to start by, you can't debate these things without being honest about them and, and just knowing what you're talking about. So when I listen to people like Elizabeth Warren uh, talk about Medicare for all or single-payer healthcare, they begin by using a kind of rhetoric that has to be unpacked. They'll say things like, we want to take healthcare away from the greedy pharmaceutical companies and turn it over to the people. Uh, that we want the people to be in control of their health care and the way their health care is administered. So then I ask the obvious question, well, what role do or will the people have in any of this? Uh, let's look at other government institutions, the post office. What control do you or I have in running the post office? None. What control do you or I have in running the DMV? Uh, none. What control does the ordinary British guy have over the British National Health Service? None. So the people here is a little bit of a ruse. The people aren't going to be actually running anything. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is. So right away, we realize that socialism offers something to the socialist class that is proposing it. Um, it's not just the pharmaceutical companies or the people. There's a third player, the politicians, who themselves have a great deal of power uh, to gain and power that is ultimately convertible into money. Um, that's a very important component. Socialists in America get very rich um, and people are able to parlay their positions uh, ultimately into vast amounts of cash. It's happened to the Bidens, the Clintons, the Obamas, uh, Al Gore. Uh, how do these people go from zero to $100 million on the government salary? Well, they do it ultimately by cashing in on their public positions. Um, so that's the first point I want to make is that the people are not in charge. In fact, the real question is who's going to run healthcare, the healthcare industry, including the insurance industry, or the political class. And that makes it a little bit more of the actual choice facing us. Yeah, I think you're absolutely on point here. And this is true of socialist revolutions everywhere that are done in the name of the people, but they end up benefiting the nomenclatura. Or in the case of Orwell, some pigs are more equal than others. Uh, now, one thing that they'll throw out as part of this economic policy, though, that they do say is treating everybody more equally, but universal basic income. We're going to guarantee a minimum income to all Americans as part of this so they can be free from the oppression of want. Uh, how do you respond to their proposals on that? Well, I think this is where we've seen a little bit of a, a preview of a nasty preview, I would say, of socialism under coronavirus, where we've actually had some form, a miniature of universal basic income. And I think for the left, this is actually almost a recipe. They almost want to say to the American people, hey, you've been sitting on your couch for months. Uh, how would you like to keep doing it? Uh, why do you want to put on a, an outfit and shave and go to work and punch a time clock and listen to your employer rave and rant? How about if we give you a thousand or two thousand bucks a month and essentially make you a permanent slug? Now, I have to admit that there is a little bit in human nature that says, wow, that's fantastic, uh, because who wants to get off the couch? 
Uh, this appeals to all of us. Uh, and ultimately, I think it points to the type of socialism, by the way, the Democrats are selling. By the way, Marx would have been disgusted by this. Uh, Marx actually admired the worker who was sweating and putting in the long day. And Marx's only point is that you're putting too much of the load on this guy. At some point, his back is going to break. At some point, he's going to have enough. He's dripping with sweat as it is. So Marx was workers of the world unite and not, as the Democrats have it now, freeloaders of the world unite. Uh, Democrats today would seem to prefer that we don't work. AOC actually made a video where she goes, we're not going back to work. Don't keep telling us to go back to work. We're sort of trying to make, we're going to try to make this temporary condition permanent. Another way to put it is that the same shortages, limits on purchases, things that I'm familiar with in India under Indian socialism, our family had a ration card, for example. So under coronavirus, we've got a temporary taste of what socialism would feel like on a permanent basis. And we shouldn't also forget the attack on civil liberties. That's a key part of what socialists do. They don't just, it's not just economic confiscation. It's also no religious liberty, no freedom of assembly, uh, no freedom of speech, no guns. Yeah, that, uh, it's funny. When you pay people not to work, you don't get production. And we've seen some of that these recent months. Uh, another one that they'll bring up in this, and this obviously doesn't really fit with traditional Marxists either, but is free college. I don't see college students as the oppressed class here. But uh, free college for everybody or forgiveness of, of student debts as part of this package. I was watching uh, 60 Minutes and I see this fellow, his name is uh, Joe Babinski. He's um, studying to be a doctor and he goes, man, I would be such a better doctor if I didn't have to worry about paying for medical school. It would be so great if this education was free. I could put all my attention into being an outstanding doctor. And, you know, here's Leslie Stahl kind of nodding with appreciative idiocy. And I'm, I'm waiting for her to ask the key question, which is, hey, Joe, if you want other people, other guys to pay for your education, once you become a doctor, uh, are you willing to work for free? The answer is obviously not. Uh, he wants the BMW lifestyle. He wants the pool in the backyard. He wants to have the, the big house and so on. So here's my point. He wants the privileges and perks of being a doctor, but he wants some poor plumber or foreman to pay for his education. I mean, the shamelessness of this um, is, I think, a little shocking. And uh, I don't think, again, that Marx would have any sympathy for this guy. He would consider him a part of the bourgeoisie, uh, part of the class to actually be thrown on his back uh, when the working class became angry enough. Except the problem with the working class, of course, today in America is that they're less likely to be found at a union uh, a revolt than they are to be found at a Trump rally. The left has lost the working class. Right. The, the working class, rather than being immiserated in Marxian theory, has become wildly prosperous over the last 150 years, which is uh, why they're having point. to change this whole game to find their constituency on this. Now, one of the new policies that's being proposed by them uh, is on the face environmentalism, but really has a lot of socialist components underneath. So why is the Green New Deal a Red New Deal? If you look at the Green New Deal, a number of its remedies have, have nothing to do with climate change. And I honestly believe that many of the politicians pushing the Green New Deal uh, neither know nor care whether the earth is getting hotter nor colder. They experience it as exactly the same as when they were kids. So this is ultimately a, a pretext and a ruse. Now, why the need for a ruse at all? 
You touched on it a moment ago when you said that the working class is not going to deliver what the socialists want. Um, Werner Sombart, an econ- economist about 100 years ago, raised the question, why has socialism not become mainstream in America? And his answer is, all socialist utopias have come to grief on roast beef and apple pie. In other words, the working guy is actually living too well. He wants to join the capitalist class, not to sort of violently fling it to the ground. And the left has figured this out. They know this too. And so they realize we need to sort of pivot. We need new types of ways to get to socialism without the kind of revolt that Marx predicted, which is never going to happen. So now they rely on the politics of fear. Uh, FDR learned in the New Deal that fear is a great way to get things done that you couldn't do otherwise. And so since then, really, I'd say since the 70s, when I, when I first came to America in my teens from India, I've been hearing this. The, in the 70s, the world was running out of food. Um, in the 80s, it was nuclear apocalypse. In the 90s, the ozone layer was apparently dissipating. The last 20 years, it's been a climate change. The oceans are rising, the glaciers are melting, the penguins are coughing. And then lately, coronavirus, the same thing. In every case, the idea is to create panic and to try to get people to do in a stampede, uh, in a crowd mentality, what they would not do if they thought about it and acted in a common deliberative manner. That's now become key to the strategy of the left, hence the importance of climate change. While you've moved us in that direction, you also identify this period of fear earlier in the 1930s as kind of how America began its transition to socialism uh, in the presidency of of FDR and the the policies he was putting in place there. Would you elaborate on that? Well, I'd like to highlight two elements of FDR that are neither all that well known. Um, One of them, of course, is that FDR actually favored and this seems almost comic to to say today, a 100% tax rate. Uh, He thought that if you made over a certain amount of money, the government should take everything. Uh, At one point, he even said, um, uh, why should any American make over $25,000 a year? Now, obviously, in his time, it it didn't mean $25,000 in our purchasing power. But nevertheless, the statement itself is revealing. He wanted a ceiling or limit on what Americans could earn. Um, The other thing FDR did was he introduced the politics of demonizing the rich, which has been very critical to the politics of the American left, not just the socialists, but the Democratic Party in general. This is actually worth noting because it's not necessarily a characteristic of socialist countries. Look at Scandinavia. In the Scandinavian countries, you will never see people demonizing the guy who's uh, running Nokia or demonizing the guy who runs Ericsson. He's a bad guy. You know, we're going to make him pay. Um, The wagging finger, the Bernie Sanders indignation, all of this is really absent from Scandinavian socialism. So when the left says, you know, we're trying to follow the Scandinavian model, uh, no, you're not. You're actually following the FDR model. Uh, and a model, I would say, that is far closer to Venezuela, um, the politics of dividing the society, not just one way, but many different ways. Um, I, I call Scandinavian socialism unification socialism. We're kind of all in this together to be contrasted with what can be called division socialism, which is absolutely critical to the politics of the left today. Look at the way, for example, that they create racial divide. They literally feast upon it. Why? Because it's part of their socialist strategy. You know, I found this surprising. A couple of years ago, uh, while I was researching, I wrote a book called Socialism Sucks, Two Economists Travel the Unfree World. And while we traveled the world and did it, we 
finished up by going to the big socialist conference in the United States. I went to Socialism 2018 and talked to young people there because there was there was there was basically nobody in our age range there. Dinesh, everybody was either uh, in their 70s now, ex 1960s hippies, or 35 and under, uh, and mostly 35 and under. And I went there to understand what do they mean by socialism? What are they talking about? And just to learn and I was astounded. I didn't hear very much about nationalizing production. I heard it from some hardcore commies who were there. But instead, I heard, oh, Black Lives Matter, immigration issues, climate issues, uh, gender issues. Pick it as you go across the spectrum of, of different things. Uh, none of them traditional socialism. Abortion, that was a big one that they all chanted about in there. I don't remember seeing that in Marx anywhere. Uh, it, I was a little bit surprised by that and I've come to see more of that now. And I actually, maybe we have some differences on this possibly. I have some sympathies with some of the issues they point out, uh, but their solutions to me almost always seem wrong headed. Uh, you identify this as, I think you call it identity socialism. Uh, would you like to elaborate on what's going on with all of that? Yes, I think this may, this is one of the kind of um, signal contributions of, of my book is that I um, identify and try to diagnose, if you will, this new type of socialism, identity socialism, which is a marriage of classic socialism and identity politics. So think of classic socialism as essentially a strategy of Marxian division between the rich and the poor, loosely speaking. It's a class divide. Well, uh, for the modern American uh, socialist left, the divide in society is that, but it's not just that. It's also a race divide, black against white. It's a gender divide, male against female. It's a sexual orientation divide, straight against gay uh, and transgender. And it's also an immigration divide, legal against illegal. So one may say that while Marx was trying to carve up society just into two groups, the left is trying to slice American society into many different um, in many, across many different lines. Now, why are they doing this? They're doing this because they think that if we divide society in these eight different ways, we can assemble a majority coalition of aggrieved victim groups that, come, that can come together and then sort of take on everybody else. So they're trying to get to 51% in the firm belief that democracy itself will then legitimize them looting and oppressing the other 49%. This is what they call democratic socialism. To me, it's a form of gangsterism uh, because um, it, to me, it's not a whole lot of difference if I was a kid going to school with 10 marbles in my pocket, whether one guy jumps me and forcibly seizes my marbles or I'm in a group of 10 and the other nine jump me, a majority, and take my marbles, either way, I'm being robbed. So what do you think it is about the banner socialism that? gets those various different to me very individual issues that don't necessarily sync together what is it about the banner of socialism that pulls them all together i think it's you the socialists are unified um really by a uh, a hatred uh that is uh, a, a hatred of capitalism but more broadly a hatred of what can be called the infrastructure of western society that has made capitalism uh, flourish within it. So in other words, they don't just hate the market uh, or the insurance companies. 
they also hate the family. Uh, they also hate the idea of a Judeo-Christian structure of morality. Uh, they hate the idea of these churches, which are a vehicle for people to uh, express their freedom of conscience. Uh, I think if the left had its way, their targets would be the family, property, and the church. In fact, this is not unique to me. The, the Russian dissident Igor Shafarevich said, all socialists target these three institutions, and they do it right away. That was certainly true in the, the former Soviet Union as well, wasn't it? It was, and it's striking to me that even though we have advocates of democratic socialism, how quickly they become tyrannical, how quickly they suddenly say, no, you can't go over here. We're going to have drones monitoring your movements, surveillance. How quickly they say, we're happy to shut the churches down. Now, look, no one's denying that there's a coronavirus, but the truth of the matter is there's also a First Amendment, um, and there's nothing in the Constitution that says unless there's a disease or unless health authorities say otherwise. So the truth of it is that these basic constitutional liberties are not up for democratic referendum. It doesn't matter if a majority opposes them. I still have the right to say what I think. I still have freedom of conscience. So the idea that even without a debate, it'd be one thing if you even debated it and there was some agony and you said, listen, on the balance, we still think, no, you have the, the, the uh, governor of New Jersey saying that, that he shut down the churches. He wasn't even thinking about the Constitution. It didn't even cross his mind. So let's actually explore this for just a moment then, because obviously the book was entirely written before the COVID-19 pandemic. And what you've seen here with governments here in the United States, but also around the world and in the United States, at both the national, but then at the state level, in terms of crackdowns on authoritarian government policies dictating what we can do with our economic and civil and religious lives. How does that make you think any differently, if at all, about anything you've wrote, written about the progress of socialism when you were writing the book before the crisis? No, I have to say that the, um, that the, um, the book um, has been vindicated in a kind of chilling way, not only by coronavirus, but even by the aftermath of the George Floyd killing. I mean, if I had said that socialists in America envision defunding the police, basically disbanding the police force, I think I would have considered that a, a far too extreme thing to say. People would say, Dinesh, you're a little crazy uh, here. I wouldn't have dared to say that, and yet I'm hearing it. So what's happened here, and I'll pivot, if I may, a little bit to the, to the riots and the mayhem and the Seattle Autonomous Zone and so on, is that we're seeing here a, an attempt to enforce a social conformity. Uh, that is goes to almost anything foreseen in Orwell. Uh, even the liturgical genuflections, the white people kissing the feet of Black Lives Matter activists, uh, the defacing of statues, incidentally, not just Confederate statues, but statues of Columbus, of Churchill in England, of Abraham Lincoln, of the unknown soldier. Uh, this shows you what's really going on. It's really not about George Floyd. There's a, specific, there's a specific injustice of George Floyd. And the truth of it is that there was a unified howl of outrage from the right and the left, me included, when this video first surfaced. It was an opportunity for national unity. But for the identity socialists, it, it can't work like that. They need race as an instrument of division. So they immediately took the George Floyd killing and put on top of it a much larger narrative. And the larger narrative is not 
what you would think would be the normal narrative. The normal narrative would be we found a bad cop or cops. Let's now try to make more good cops. But no, their view is let's have no cops. Why? Because the cops are racist. The institution is racist. And that's no surprise because it's because our free market society is allied with, with white supremacy and America itself is structurally racist. And it's been that way since 1619. So you've got this um, remarkable and gigantic narrative and it's hooked onto the George Floyd killing. Why? Because if you disagree with the narrative, you're then accused of being insensitive to George Floyd. So this is the strategy, if you will, of the identity socialists. They uh, force you to embrace the larger narrative uh, even though you are more than willing to go along with them on the original injustice, you're just not willing to sign on to a whole bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with it. All right. I don't want to go too far afield here, but I'm going to see if I can pivot this into the theme of socialism in the book it, it related a little bit and try out something different, a different narrative for you on this. And similarly recognizing the injustice that occurred, but also recognizing free market capitalism tends to minimize racism because the people who discriminate pay the consequences of it. But the specific industry, of course, that they're protesting is one that's largely uh, government run throughout the entire country. Might there be any opportunity for free market capitalists to talk about how privatization and competition and policing could maybe better address some issues that are legitimately of concern to people? I think that there is a, an opportunity there. Um, I've been quite struck in my lifetime to see that services that even I took for granted would be government monopolies. The post office um, uh, have now found competitors, UPS, Federal Express. Um, prison services are sometimes contracted privately. So much of our defense services is farmed out to private corporations. So there are all kinds of opportunities. By and large, things are always done better in the private sector. I think this is actually almost a, a law of the universe. Uh, if you left it to the post office, they would not have figured out that mail could be delivered overnight to this day. Uh, it's only when FedEx figured it out that they went, ooh, wow, hey, we can do that too. Uh, planes, after all, have existed for 100 years. So this is the, uh, the level of uh, innovation that you get from the government, namely close to zero. Um, so I agree. And on the other hand, I would say that, look, the very reason we have a government, the very reason we have a social compact, uh, not just according to Locke, but even according to Hobbes, uh, is that we need protection. Uh, we need to be protected from foreign and domestic thugs. And Hobbes, who favored Leviathan, the large state, even Hobbes said, if the state does not do that, if it doesn't give you the protection that you came into the society in the expectation of, Basically, all bets are off. You owe no more allegiance to the state. You have every right to overthrow the state. You certainly don't need to pay your taxes. Uh, you are basically back in the state of nature. So I, I want to emphasize the radicalism of what the left is putting on offer here. Defund the police to me actually means dissolve the social compact. All right. Let's, uh, let's try to bring this back in, into the book now a little bit more for our, our book TV show here. Uh, and by the way, I bet you in all of your other book promotions on news networks, you're not going to get anybody who plays the privatized police angle back to you. <laughs> uh, That's so, true. Uh, yeah. Uh, so thinking about the identity politics and the divisiveness then, uh, you bring up the case. In fact, my favorite chapter in your book uh, was on Venezuela versus Sweden. Uh, and I think it was uh, something like Venezuela, see, Sweden, no, about where this is all headed. 
And, you know, Bernie, despite honeymooning in the Soviet Union, uh, likes to talk about the Scandinavian model. And he says things like Denmark and Sweden and Norway, those are nice places. That's what I mean, which by the way, until I read your book, I did not know that he had never visited there. Uh, very telling. Uh, but, uh, you know, people bring up, and I've done this before in my own writing, that these countries aren't very socialist. They have big welfare states with big high taxes for lots of people. And actually as an economist, I think there's lots of problems with that. And that's one reason why their growth slowed and they're not as good as they could be. But that's not socialist. And I saw some sympathy for that view in your book, but you also had a different point. And you said, whether it is or not, it's basically not attainable in the United States. Why not? Well, the American socialism is based on a simple idea. Uh, an idea outlined by George Bernard Shaw, in fact, a century ago, any government that robs Peter to pay Paul uh, can count on Paul's support. So the left in this country is tries to say to people, hey, listen, um, we can offer you this and we can offer you that. And the really good news is it's truly free. Now, it's not truly free because college isn't free. You need buildings and professors and technology. Hospitals aren't free. You have to pay doctors. So what they mean by free is the good news for you is that we're going to make somebody else pay. That's the key to American socialism. It would actually collapse without it. If you, if you told uh, Bernie Sanders, AOC, Elizabeth Warren, stop demonizing the rich, stop promising that somebody else will pay, they would be rendered completely mute. Now, as you know, the Scandinavians don't do this. Uh, they are first capitalist in wealth creation. They have low corporate taxes, about the same as here. Most of them have no minimum wage. You can hire and fire people for any reason. With one exception, they don't have a wealth tax. There's no inheritance tax. Uh, the kind of financial transaction fees that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have proposed for Wall Street, there's no Scandinavian country that does that. Finland tried universal income, dumped it, got rid of it, declared it doesn't work. So that's the actual Scandinavian model. Uh, and, um, and they don't demonize the rich. So the left doesn't want that. Uh, this is a key to what they do. The second point is the Scandinavians have high taxes, but they distribute them evenly across the board. Even the middle class pays high taxes. If you make $75,000 in Sweden, you're going to pay close to a 50% tax rate. So it's not that the millionaires and billionaires will pay. They soak the whole society. And their so-called VAT or VAT, the consumption tax of 25%, that falls, as you know, as an, as an economist, disproportionately on the poor. So this idea of distributing the load, if everybody wants benefits, everyone's going to have to pay. The Scandinavians don't use the vocabulary of free stuff because they know it isn't free. Who's paying? They are. So we could adopt that model, but that's not the model the left even wants. The key to their strategy, and this is the political element of it, is we've got to offer people something for which they don't have to pay so we can trade that something for their vote. The Scandinavians do not do that. Yeah, in fact, I think you use the label in the book for kind of jokingly that you called it Sven socialism, uh, that we're, we're all in this together and paying for it as a group. And you make the argument that you couldn't even pull off that pitch in the United States. Why not? Because it, it, it's essentially bitter medicine. Uh, you could go to the American people and say, listen, guys, uh, the government will now provide you with certain key services, uh, free school and free college. Um, you would have your retirement uh, provided for. You would never have to pay another health care bill in your life. But in return, we ask of the entire society just take your paycheck, 
cut it in half and send that half into the U.S. government. Uh, That would be the true Scandinavian model. Uh, So if you make $50,000, just write a check for $25,000 and send it in. Uh, And uh, that's what the Scandinavians do. Now, most Americans would be like, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. And the left knows that. Uh, That's why even Bernie Sanders, in a strange way, you know, in his early career, he'd be denouncing millionaires and billionaires. Then he became a millionaire. So now, if you notice, he only denounces billionaires. So the, the key to American socialism ultimately is the robbing Peter to pay Paul approach. Now, Um, The other thing I want to point out is my wife is from Venezuela. All the things that we see in American socialism, you can see in Venezuela. Venezuelan socialism is identity socialism. Hugo Chavez, the former uh, dictator, uh, was indigenous, and he introduced the politics of race division into Venezuela. Basically, it was the indigenous and the blacks against the whites. Um, it, uh, Venezuela has this, these sort of militarized gangs called colectivos, un, they're allies of the socialist regime. They go on motorcycles. What do they carry? They carry sticks. They carry cement blocks. They even look like our Antifa, and they are, in fact, Venezuela's answer to Antifa. Um, so, again, this is a similarity between Venezuela and the United States. Where's Scandinavia's version of Antifa? They don't have any. There's no such thing. Um, so all the elements, again, we, we say, the left says we are following Sven socialism. We're trying to be like Norway. But in reality, they're following, you could call it the Caracas model, the Venezuelan model. And that's not a model that ends very well. Yes, the, the Sven model, while it uh, slows down economic growth because of the bad incentives of a welfare state and high taxes, it still doesn't kill the goose that lays the golden egg because it spreads out the pain across everybody doing it together. So one question that I'm interested in that you didn't really address too directly in your book, but relates to this of why that model is not sellable in the United States, although it's kind of implied in your comment about it being spend socialism, is it's all a pretty homogenous society. It's a smaller society that's more alike, that views it as just helping each other out instead of us subsidizing them or vice versa. So I wonder what role immigration has played in the United States, because you mentioned illegal immigration a lot, but you didn't say very much in the book about the history of legal migration, which of course, for most of our, for much of our history, essentially all migration was legal. Uh, What role that plays in making socialism impossible in America? Because Marx, if we go back to his writings, he complained that socialism wasn't advancing as quickly in the United States as it was in Europe, precisely because immigration divided the workers so they weren't, uh, didn't have as much solidarity. And we have some legacy of that today that makes, in my mind, spend socialism harder to pitch in the United States. What what role do you think that's played? I I think it's played an important role. I'm struck, I would say, um, I mean, I'm a legal immigrant and I I see the history of America uh, through those eyes. In fact, when I was in college, one of the most striking things to me is that many of the questions that I as an immigrant was curious about were never addressed in the progressive, if you will, curriculum. The progressive curriculum was so focused on things like how did America extend its prosperity and its, its regime of legal rights to previously excluded groups And my question was, how did America become prosperous in the first place? How did this so-called third world country, a backwater nation at the time of the founding, become the richest country of the world in less than 100 years? How does it make this kind of abundance available to the common man? And I think progressivism, and this is a little bit of a side point to your question, but progressivism has pushed these questions under the rug. 
the left is very focused now on illegal immigration. And for a while, that puzzled me because I said to myself, why? You know, illegals can't vote. So if this is ultimately a vote buying scheme, what are you trying to achieve by appealing to people who can't ultimately vote for you, at least not not legally, not, not lawfully. I realize what the left is up to here. It's part of their broader politics of demonization. They conflate the idea of the legal and the illegal, the objective of which is ultimately to try to portray Republicans and the right as not just be, being against illegals, but against Mexicans or against immigrants generally. So the idea here is to try to foment a kind of immigrant rebellion against Trump and against the Republican Party by erasing the, the very important line between a lawful entry into the United States and an unlawful entry into the United States. So, and again, I don't want to take us too far afield from the book on, on these things, but I guess a, a reasonable question from a free market perspective back might be, wouldn't a great defense against this be uh, for free market supporters to come out and say, we need to expand legal immigration so that illegal immigration isn't as much of a problem because the wait list to legally migrate is, you know, astoundingly long for people coming from some countries. And isn't this just kind of free trade and labor, which is part of free markets? Yes. And I also think that um, I, I agree that uh, our country can and should take a large number of legal immigrants. I also think, by the way, that our immigration system is broken in the sense that we um, take immigrants, for example, on the family unification provision, which is ultimately a kind of a racket. Uh, if I had wanted, I, I'm the only member of my family here in America, but over the past 30 years, I could probably have brought 50 or 60 of my family members uh, through a kind of chain process. This was not the intention of the law at all. Uh, so I would say I would love to see America take legal immigrants, but also specify that we want enterprising, hardworking, industrious people who believe in the American dream and are coming here to assimilate to it. I think immigration would be uncontroversial uh, if we took those kinds of people. Of course, the Democrats would be horrified because those kinds of people would be very likely to vote Republican. Yeah, and actually, I think, relating this back to socialism then, is it's often precisely the type of people fleeing socialist country that fit the characteristics that you uh, are speaking of. I mean, I can think of no more anti-socialist voting bloc in the United States than Cuban immigrants in Florida. Um, and I wanted to bring this back then to the Venezuela part of your book, as we're seeing people leaving Venezuela now. Um, of what's going on there to democratic freedoms and ideals that we hold? Because a lot of people don't know the history of the Venezuela, and I know you're more familiar with it, not just through your writing, but through your own personal relationship with your wife. Of, it was once a very rich country. It was economically free, capitalist, democratic. And now we have this basket case here today that the left doesn't want to own anymore when they say they want socialism. Uh, but it really is a telling story if, if you could tell us what's happened there a little bit. It's, it's so uh, poignant and, and sad. I mean, my wife's experience, uh, Debbie and mine, has been kind of the opposite. I mean, I grew up in a country, India, that was the begging bowl of the world. Uh, that was thoroughly socialist. Um, and uh, India now is much better. Whenever I go back, there are new buildings and people who used to, you know, go to the sea to wash their clothes and I have washing machines. And so there's a, there's a thriving Indian middle class. India is better. Um, my wife grew up in a Venezuela of the 70s that was fantastic. I mean, it was so fantastic that when she came to America at the age of 10, uh, moving to the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, she thought she had moved to a third world country. 
She thought America was poorer than Venezuela. Now, she happened to be in a poor part of America, but it's so revealing. So to see a country that is multiracial, prosperous, with a flourishing democratic system, rival parties, admittedly corruption and all, not perfect, but to see that break down into a kind of third world barbarism, Caracas is now the most dangerous city on the planet, uh, to see the oil industry that once flourished in Venezuela being raised to the ground, in part because the socialist government fired all the technical personnel and replaced them with sort of Bernie Sanders types, in other words, bloviating pamphleteers who didn't know how to get oil out of the ground. Uh, this is what happens by and large with the socialist takeover. We're seeing it a little bit in the Seattle autonomous zone. It's not autonomous. If those guys were truly autonomous, they would starve in weeks. Uh, but they're always putting out long lists of supplies. You know, send us medicine, send us Gatorade, send us this, send us that. So they're, they're parasitic on the larger free market society that is sustaining um, those guys. Um, so the bottom line of it is Venezuela has been destroyed. We could go the way of Venezuela. I think Debbie and I are determined to put our hands to the wheel to make sure that doesn't happen here. And what we saw in Venezuela, too, was the confiscation of businesses, the, the takeover of what. They were trying to fund their socialism by just going after the, the, the wealthy. And as a result, there's no wealthy, except, of course, for these, uh, the, the ruling regime. Hugo Chavez had a television show, it happened to be called Allo Presidente, Hello, Mr. President. And you literally see him on his own show. He's walking down the streets in Venezuela and he'll, he's talking to an aide and he goes, who owns that business? And the guy goes, oh, it's, it's some Jews. And he goes, okay, expropriate it. And literally at that very moment, they go in and they force the owners to get out and they take it. And then he goes, who owns, who owns that business? And they go, well, he, he's an opponent of our, of our regime. Expropriate it. Um, so this kind of, this is socialism carried to its logical endpoint. But I don't think it's that different from what the left has in mind here. In fact, I think that when a guy like Bill de Blasio sees these looters smashing glasses and running in and running out with a bunch of shoes, it's really hard for him to condemn them too much. Why? Well, first, because I think he sees a younger version of himself. But I think second, because they want to do in a systematic way what the looters are doing in an unsystematic way. So the looter is just grabbing a bunch of shoes and running out. What de Blasio would do is have an 80% uh, marginal uh, top rate so that ultimately he could run these businesses into the ground, confiscate their resources legally, and then ultimately offer them to other people again in exchange for their dependency and political support. Now, you said something I think very important there when describing Chavez and you said, oh, it's a political opponent. Nationalize it. it this is what's happened to democratic freedoms. When people say they want democratic socialism, they don't seem to get the connection that Hayek pointed out long ago, Frederick Hayek and the road to serfdom, uh, or Milton Friedman and capitalism and freedom, when both of them said that basically without a very large degree of economic freedom, it's very hard to maintain your democratic freedoms. Once you become dependent upon the state for your livelihood and for permission to uh, engage in economic exchange, you lose your voice. And people seem to forget Venezuela was democratic socialism. As, as was India. And I think a very profound point that I got out of Hayek, he doesn't say it this way, but I'm going to say it my way, uh, because we hear often so many people say today, well, you know, they're only destroying property. Uh, that's completely different from harming a person or taking their life. A property does not have the same kind of value that other things have. And I actually want us to you know, reflect on our own experience, because I think this is actually not true. The things that I own that are my possessions, if you will, everything from my clothes to my glasses to my books and so on, they are as much an extension of me 
as my thoughts, uh, my memories, my experiences, to some degree, my relationships. All of this encompasses, if you will, the larger world that is me, that is my life. And so the idea that somehow you can take my things because they are merely things, and that's not the same as violating my person, I think this is actually a very deep fallacy and misses the way in which the things that our blood, sweat, and tears have gone into building and acquiring are in fact part of who we are. You know, I think this is a great transition because I know one of the goals in your book was to not just talk about the, the economic problems of these or identify the, the factions, but to make the moral argument against identity socialism and the moral argument for, for free market capitalism. Maybe you can elaborate on what you were just saying to make a, a broader moral case for freedom and free markets. This to me is absolutely critical because I think a lot of the anxiety, a, lo a lot of the appeal of socialism arises out of the moral anxiety of capitalism. Uh, and the moral anxiety of capitalism uh, is often, I think, ineffectively defended by certain types of libertarians who are always pointing out, a la Hayek, how capitalism works fantastically well. Uh, capitalism disperses information most effectively. Capitalism is the best way to organize human behavior. And the left, in a sense, sort of grudgingly concedes this. Capitalism is efficient, yes. But their point is, it's immoral. It's unjust. And I think the core of their argument isn't even the uh, argument of inequality. It is that, the, that somehow capitalism is undemocratic. Uh, it, 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 it does not allocate rewards in proportion with what people do. And so this is the argument I really try to, this is the bull I try to take by the horns. Uh, I'll address it in a very small way here. I just want to make the point that while the, the, the democratic socialists are always saying we need to extend democracy from the political sphere into the economic sphere. That's their argument for democratic socialism. It's authorized by the moral legitimacy of democracy itself. But my point is that the market is more democratic now than our political system. Because think about it. In our political system, we're, we're voters, and we vote every two years or every four years. Uh, we don't vote to make decisions directly. We, we vote in a representative democracy. We vote to, for other guys to make decisions on our behalf. But in the market, as consumers, we vote all the time, every single day, many times a day. Uh, we vote with our hard-earned dollars. Uh, and this is a form of participatory democracy. We're actually giving up something that's important to us, that represents our own effort. Whereas when we vote in politics, it costs us nothing. If it's not raining, a lot of people stay home. Uh, or if it is raining, they stay home. So the point I'm trying to make is that we don't have to extend democracy from the political to the economic sphere. Why? Because we already have it. Capitalism is far more reflective of popular will and popular consent than democratic socialism. So I think some people might complain that you, you refer to them as your hard-earned dollars, but they might say those are unjustly earned dollars, so your votes in the marketplace are inherently unjust to start with. I think personally what they're missing is the wealth generation process that really comes through cooperating by helping serve your fellow humans and how you make profits, uh, and that that's the vast majority of our economic activity. But there is still a kernel of truth to some of it of what I would call crony capitalism. Uh, of where people do earn dollars and vote in the marketplace, but with ill-gotten dollars. What do you say to the justice or the morality of, of that situation? 
uh, crony capitalism, I think, is actually not capitalism at all. In fact, it is an unholy alliance uh, between the state and the sort of business class. Adam Smith, by the way, was onto this and very suspicious of it, and I think rightly so. Um, but on the other hand, it's important to notice that, that the reason we have a lot of inequality, the reason we have these billionaires. Now, AOC said recently on social media, she goes, no one earns a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. I want to explore that for just a minute because it seems to me that it's not entrepreneurs who have created this enormous inequality uh, we have. Why? Because you've had these supply side entrepreneurs. A good example is, is Steve Jobs. Now, you know, we, traditionally we think of entrepreneurs as responding to demand. People have to eat, so entrepreneurs supply food, etc. But people have to want to drive cars, entrepreneurs supply the cars. But nobody wrote Steve Jobs and said, hey, Steve, how about making a phone that takes photos, uh, you know, and allows you to text and has a built-in GPS and does this and does that? No one did that. He envisioned it and he built it and he marketed it before we knew we couldn't live without it. So the enormous rewards that have accrued to Apple as a result is because they have done something that one would think was almost impossible. They anticipated our wants and needs even before we knew we wanted those things. I think those are the most successful and ingenious entrepreneurs. It's not even, they're, they're, it's not just that they aim at a target and hit it. They, they aim at a target that the rest of us can't even see. And this, of course, is a big flashy one with the camera and Steve Jobs, but it's also everyday mundane innovation of finding ways to lower cost or better serve your, your customers that businesses do all the time to create value. So with just a few minutes left to, to wrap up then, uh, I'd like you to ask you, uh, so average American who's, who's watching this interview and, and sitting here nodding his head with you, uh, if he's concerned with, he or she's concerned with socialism spreading in the United States, uh, I can think of at least one, maybe two things. One, they could buy your book. Two, they could buy Socialism Socks, my book. Three, what do you want to throw in there as what should they go out and do uh, to deal with the threat of socialism in the United States? Well, they could also watch and share my movie, which is coming out later this summer. It's called, it's actually called Trump Card. And it is a, I, I like to do the book and the movie kind of as a one-two punch. The book is sort of lays out the intellectual spine. It's an argument, as all books are. The movie is more of an emotional narrative, a journey, but telling ultimately the same story, but in a different way and reaching a, reaching a wider audience, I think, than books, books can ever reach. I think most importantly, we have to be, we have to understand socialism and understand the new socialism so we can effectively answer it. A lot of the young people, by the way, who are attracted by it, uh, they're, they're, it's not that they're dumb. Uh, part of it is that they have been propagandized by their professors. This is a whole other story we haven't gotten into. In my days at Dartmouth, for example, there, even though the left was dominant, there was real debate over the types of issues that the Reagan revolution was all about. Now I go to campuses to speak and I find young people, that debate has disappeared. Um, when I say things, uh, they look at me as if I just slapped them. Why? Because they've never heard them before. No one on the campus has ever said that to them before. And so we have uh, ultimately, I think, unfortunately, a little bit of a brainwashed class of young people. And it's desperately important we find other ways to reach them so they at least know that there are, that they can subject their existing prejudices to Socratic questioning. Well, come on out and visit us in Texas sometime because I teach at Texas Tech University and uh, it's a much healthier climate of, of discussion out there of, of, of things related to this. I, I also think it's important to identify with young people and sometimes say, 
what are the injustices that they're seeing? And instead of just dismissing them as being nuts, instead say, okay, well, let's think about how voluntary cooperation might solve this better than state socialism. I, I couldn't agree more. For a lot of young people, for example, when they look at these escalating college costs, they blame the free market system. They don't realize that the vast presence of Pell Grants and a whole panoply of government provisions for education have encouraged these universities to jack up their prices. Uh, in other words, we're not dealing with the free market. Uh, you know, I sometimes use the analogy where if you're in a grocery store and people say, you have a right to food, so just help yourself to whatever you want. Uh, people would then say, instead of taking two cartons of milk, I'll take 30 because there's no, I'll just fill up my cart. But what we don't realize is when you show up at the counter, it's going to occur to the grocery guys on the other side of the counter. Hey, Dinesh isn't paying for his groceries. Why should we charge $2.40 for a carton of milk? How about $30? In other words, what's happening here is that a ripoff scheme is now emerging, a ripoff scheme in which I and the grocery store are complicit in robbing a third guy who is not present and has no say in this debate, namely the taxpayer. He's the one footing the bill. So the Democrats, their political strategy is based on that. It's based upon looting the invisible third man who is not present in the debate. I think you're exactly right. And I think it's no accident that things like healthcare are also on that list where free markets are most curtailed by their regulations. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Great new book. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.